Welcome to another episode of Diversity Dish. Today's episode is sponsored by VIP Discovery Dates with Sadie. That's me. VIP Discovery Dates are a full-day immersion into discovering what your untapped strengths are, how to use them in your business, how to use them in your anti-racist work so your efforts are more magnified, and mapping out how you're going to get to the big, brilliant goal you'll set while on our date. The brief information with a link to sign up is in the show notes. There are only five spots available, so make sure to hurry. Your brilliance will always make a difference. Welcome to Diversity Dish, where we're dishing on everything diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice related. My name is Sidrola Maruska, and we're bridging the gap between what needs to be said and what needs to be heard. Those individual experiences that are often ignored or simply dismissed. Sometimes I'm dining alone, sometimes I'm dining with friends, and sometimes I'm dining a la carte. No matter how I'm dining, it promises to be delicious. Let's dig in. Nike Anani is an entrepreneur and a consultant. Rated as a top 100 family business consultant globally, she helps her clients bridge the gap between the senior and younger generations. As a result, they communicate, collaborate, and collectively gain clarity to increase profit and productivity in their family businesses. With over a decade of family business expertise in Nigeria, Nike helps owners lead their family organizations to long-term impact and legacy. Her inside experience as a second-generation family business owner birthed a passion to help other families in building legacy enterprises that would outlive them. Nike is an accountant and a top-rated family business expert with a family business and wealth advisor qualification from Family Firm Institute. She is the co-founder of African Family Firms, a pan-African association of family businesses and the host of the Connected Generation podcast. Nikkei's clients choose to engage her not only because of her extensive professional training, but also because of her practical experience as both a business founder and a next gen. This allows her to uniquely empathize with both generations and act as a connector. Nikkei is a champion for diversity and celebrates the uniqueness in every individual family and business. Hello, Nikkei. It is so good to meet you. How are you today? I am excellent. Thank you so much for having me, Sergio. It's such a pleasure. I'm so excited. You are way on the other side of <laughs> the world in Lagos. So thank you for taking the time to be on with me. This is very exciting. Very much so. The world is a, it's a global village and I'm finding that in as much as there might be seeming differences between us as humans, we have more in common than we have different and just connecting with people all over the world just gives you space to learn so much. It's really enriching. So I'm, I really, I'm really excited about this opportunity for this conversation. You are so right. It is a global village and the, the, the sooner we all learn that, the better it will be for everybody. 
So before we get into all of the conversations that we're going to have, I would love for you to just tell me, what are you passionate about right now? Generational wealth in two words through generational businesses. And why? Because poverty is a plague that we must exterminate from our world. I guess how and why I'm so passionate about generational wealth is I, like he said, I'm based in Lagos, Nigeria. I grew up here. At some point I moved to the UK, but barring that, um, I've, a lot of my upbringing was here in Lagos in Nigeria. And unfortunately, Nigeria is the poverty capital of the world. We have the most people mm -hmm, living in absolute poverty. 86 million people live on less than $5 a day. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. You know, when I think about that, I go $5 a day. day. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I don't even care. I don't even care how cheap things are. Right. Even if things are really, really dirt cheap, five dollars a day in 2021 is unfathomable. And you you know why it's so striking is that usually numbers don't pierce. Numbers don't evoke an emotion within us. Usually it's stories or people. Yeah. That do. Um, But the enormity of this poverty really does move on. Um, because it's just completely astounding. Poverty, obviously, is, you know, um, lack of cash, lack of money, lack of assets. But beyond being able to meet one's physical needs, it also, I believe, it has, it, it, it robs one of one's dignity. Mm-hmm. And also, it shackles one's mentality. Mm-hmm. So it's beyond just lining of our pockets and providing financial freedom and financial prosperity. It's, it's taking ourselves away from a bondage. And if we can really focus on building sustainable generational wealth through generational businesses, um, we set our future descendants free from this plague, from mm. this bondage. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk on social media. I, my ancestors' wildest dreams. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> <I've seen it. laughs> yeah, I mean, can't we bring that into reality really through providing a platform for our descendants, not just to, to do our ancestors proudly, um, just for our generation, but to build something that would outlive us. That is the true meaning of legacy. So I've always been very plagued by the extent of poverty mm-hmm. in Africa, where I live. But also when you turn to the US, it's the same thing. It seems yeah. that wealth has a color mm-hmm. um, all over the world. And how can we, as a community, systematically begin to reverse this trend of generational poverty mm-hmm. to build true lasting generational wealth yeah it's it's a very good question to ask and i i ask it a lot of times because i realize that the same the conversations that are had at different dinner tables around the country or even around the world if you know we're we're talking about our shared community 
really depends on what the matriarch and patriarch of that family are or have been or or are or understand the understanding that they have of money. And one of the things that is glaring is that there isn't financial information provided in our schools. We don't have financial Mm -hmm. education provided to us. So it depends fully on conversations that are being had at home. And those conversations are not always informed to what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So it makes a lot of sense in order to, so I think that in order to break that cycle, there has to be more education around the financial finances and the financial wealth and how it works and why it's important in building that legacy, as mm-hmm. you say, for the for the next generations, right? I completely agree. And I think another way outside of the home is we're social beings. Mm-hmm. We we love our tribes. We love our communities. And a key way we can learn is through our social networks. Mm-hmm. Through unfortunately we haven't had that privilege historically right? Um, where we've had this collective wisdom, this collective knowledge that we can impart and pass on. But we can be intentional as a people in cultivating communities. So for instance, um, I am a co-founder of a nonprofit community of family business owners across Africa. And the reason for that is that I recognize, like you were kind of alluding to, that wealth building, entrepreneurial skills are are not just often not taught, they're caught. And it (laughs) right. And if you've got the privilege of staying being in knit proximity to someone that has those skills, then you you might catch them, right? But like we said, wealth has a color. And so there's a inherent bias in terms of people like yourselves and I are unlikely to have access to such information. Mm -hmm. But if we're systemic and intentional about building communities where we start to teach each other about how to do, do such, then we stand a better chance of freeing the next generation from this generational poverty. Because social capital is something we overlook. Mm-hmm. We often think as think of financial capital as a source of wealth, but social capital, it can, you can take it to the bank. You your, can. <laughs> you can take it to the bank. <laughs> you can. Um, your, yeah. your, your, the people, your network is literally your net worth, as is often said, right? Um, so how can we socialize our learning? I think it's something else we need to be thinking about as a community. Right. It's kind of, it kind of goes in line with that um, saying that says, you know, the five people closest to you inform who you are and what you do. And yes. so what you're saying is let's create communities of more than five people, but let's have these people have gain this information, share this information and use it for, for the betterment of this community as well. So I'm totally with you on that. So you are a family business strategist. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means? Because I don't know that that's, you know, yeah. (laughs) It's not necessarily clear. So um, as I was speaking and explaining that I'm passionate about generational wealth through generational businesses, and usually businesses that transcend generations often are family businesses. So businesses that are either majority owned, 
by individual family members as opposed to institutions and or controlled on the, by the, on the board level or management level by family members as opposed to, again, like a third-party corporate. Mm-hmm. Um, often family businesses have unique challenges because they've got this weird confluence between family and business, which mm-hmm. have completely different objectives. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Family is a nurturing unit where we want psychological safety. We want to feel loved, appreciated, and everyone has a voice and everyone's treated equally. Business is a, lo- a little bit more ruthless and it's performance oriented. It's mm-hmm. not your emotional bank. It's more like your traditional bank. We want a return on investment. Right. And <laughs> it's about the three P's, profit, performance, productivity, and we're treating people not based on, you know, equal treatment, but really whether it's merited or not. And when you have this confluence of these two conflicting systems, it gives rise to unique challenges. Like if a child starts working in the business, how do you remunerate them? Are you remunerating them as, as an employee or are you, um, are you providing an allowance as a child? Mm. All these sorts of issues can have wider effects on non-family staff that for instance have been in the business for many years i've built this business with you from scratch and are just looking at johnny that just strolled in and might get an allowance or might just go straight to the boardroom without Mm. going up the ladder Mm -hmm. but my particular jam is moving businesses past the first generation in my country of origin only two percent of businesses will outlive their founders compared to 33 globally. Mm-hmm. 2%, wow. Yeah, your, your face was like... <laughs> yeah, like really? Yeah, what? <laughs> Two compared to 33. And so I, my specialism is really helping families that are at that transition where mm-hmm. the founder wants to retire, the next generation wants to come in and take over the leadership of the business, whether hands-on or behind the scenes. And I help to facilitate that generational bridge to cross over successfully. Right. So that's what you call the next gen then when you're Precisely. talking about next gen. You're talking about the, the people who are um, next in line from the founder of the business. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. And it takes different dimensions. Um, mm-hmm. Quite often we're thinking about just the business sphere. So. Um, When we're talking about the next generation, I'm not necessarily talking about those that would succeed the founder as the leader of the business. Mm -hmm. That might not necessarily be a family member. That could be a non-family staff that will be the president or CEO. Mm -hmm. But when we're talking about the next gen, we're actually talking about the next generation of family members because they're the next generation of owners of the business. Mm -hmm next generation of the family leadership of the business, family leadership of the family, not the business. Right, right. (laughs) And actually as owners of the business will influence the management of the business. So they're critical change agents in the family business system. Right. So how do you go about facilitating something like that? Let's say you have, you're working with a company and the owner is not they're thinking about retiring, let's say in like five, 10 years, is it that they have already brought the next generation into the the dealings of the business? Or is this now when they're thinking about bringing them in and then that's when you get involved? 
either every family is unique every family business is unique right. um, there's all sorts of dynamics going on sometimes founders don't even want to pull back and right. sometimes I don't know if you've seen succession or authorized unauthorized living on TV all these tv sitcoms okay. and there's the one unauthorized living is um, based in Spain and it's based on a family business a family business owner actually he finds out he has dementia mm. and but he decides he's not going to tell his family members <laughs> and then he he's quietly plotting who will succeed the business so sometimes founders are really reluctant to let go and they're avoiding their mortality. Sometimes mm. I'm pulled into the room by the next generation family members that are like, look, we need a plan. We need to get mom or dad to pull back a bit and we need to understand what's going to happen when the inevitable happens. Right. And facilitate a connection and build this bridge because there's this huge communication gap between us and mom and dad. And can we start to gain clarity on what's the what's the way forward yeah right yeah it's really interesting so what percentage of people are the next gen that bring you in or the the founders that bring you in like what's the percentage breakdown 80 next gen 20 founders oh Mm -hmm. interesting okay Mm -hmm. because i'm a next gen myself and i think the industry at large has we can talk about this has been dominated by old white men the family family business advisory industry. Mm -hmm. And I think for the first time, the next generation feel represented by Mm -hmm. someone that looks like them, understands them and Mm -hmm. is speaking in their language. Whilst diversity is very important, I I do believe, but there's also affinity is very important. Representation Mm -hmm. is very important. There's certain matters that I will not disclose to someone because I feel they just don't get it. Whether they will or they won't, it's another matter, but it's about affinity. It's about feeling a connection. It's about feeling an assumption that the person will be empathetic. Therefore, a lot of the next generation have felt overlooked, Mm -hmm. felt ignored, by the advisors that serve the business owners or leadership coaches and things like that Mm -hmm. because unfortunately they don't write the check everyone looks to the person that writes the check as the most powerful in the room right and I think that's just a whole load of nonsense (laughs) but many many reasons I can tell you why um, ethically it's wrong commercially it's wrong yeah ethically it's wrong because this founder is going to eventually pass this business or something onto the next generation, whether it succeeds or not. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I worked in professional services. I worked in Deloitte for four years in the UK before I moved back to Nigeria. And Mm -hmm. we would have to define who is the client. And in situations like this, we would actually end up concluding that the family unit is the client because Mm -hmm. they all benefit from the services therefore we have to take into consideration the perspectives of different people not just one Mm -hmm. so ethically it's wrong commercially it's absolutely wrong by 2050 the industry anticipates that 90 trillion dollars will move into the next generation will pass hand into the next generation Mm. the biggest intergenerational wealth transfer that has ever happened in our history will happen in the next 20 to 30 years. 
So these folks that you're looking, you're overlooking now, tomorrow, <laughs> they're the ones that will actually be, you know, holding the checkbook. They're the ones that are making decisions. And the data suggests that 90% of next gens, when they have the power, once the founder transitions, they change all the advisors. They change the family business advisor, the lawyers, the accountants, everyone, because they feel that those folks represent just the founder. They never had a voice. They were never acknowledged. They, they didn't have a say, and they now want to exercise that power. So it's unethical. It's not, not commercial. So yeah, a lot of next gens tend to approach me. Sometimes I work just with the next gen. Sometimes I work with the whole family. Right. Wow. That's really interesting because, and I didn't realize that they would switch up everybody, but it makes perfect sense, right? If, if all these people were just talking to dad before never acknowledging me now, all of a sudden, how are they going to how are they going to shift their thinking and how am I going to shift my thinking about mm -hmm. them? They now have to see me as the, as the person holding the checkbook, so to speak. Exactly. And I have to see them as working in my best interest. And that can be really hard. So mm -hmm. it's like, nope, I'm going to just go with all new people, like exercise my, my power, as you just <laughs> said, and just go with all new people. It's really interesting that's a lot of money also that's going to be transferred to the next generation. Oh yeah. And when you consider that the majority of that is going to be transferred within the hands of white people, mm -hmm. it's even more <laughs> perplexing because <laughs> I think we mentioned it before, you know, but that money is the power and not having that, you know, is a problem. Here in the United States, I know that the uh, wealth gap is 10 times higher for white family than it is for black family. Wow. So you talk about generational wealth and we know and understand that a lot of that, even if it's not business, in business, the way that you're speaking of it, but it is in assets, right? Yep. The assets that you pass down you know, even if you're a novice and you're looking at the real estate market and yeah. you go back in history because all of these things are public record on a particular property, you'll see that when grandma, grandma probably built the house mm -hmm. or grandpa, you know, grandma and grandpa built the house. And then so when they passed and, and mom received it, it was two hundred worth 200,000 more than when they built it, Right. And so now mom is holding on to it and you're looking at it going up and up and up. And it's incredible because now by the time the next generation gets that piece of property, mm -hmm. it's going to be 500,000 times the worth that it was when it was built. Mm -hmm. And that is simply being passed down and you can take the equity out of it. You can, you can borrow from it. And that is something that has not been within the Black community mm -hmm. because we were not allowed into certain markets. So as I think about what you're saying in business, it translates for me in that way and in so many other ways. So when you're talking about building, helping families build, build a business, you're, you're talking about helping them build a legacy business. Mm -hmm. 
What are some of the roadblocks, not just internally, but externally that can be holding it back from coming to fruition? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And your face is like, oh boy, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Oh, where does one start? Um, Oh, sorry. Largely, it's internal, not external. Okay. Think about it. Entrepreneurs are seasoned folks that have built a business for a generation, 30, Mm -hmm. 40 years, and it's been growing. But this stressor point, usually it's that point of handover. Um, Mm -hmm. When, and usually it's when the founder passes away or becomes incapacitated because there hasn't been a proper succession plan Mm -hmm. to have someone else take over and usually the reticence for the founder to get into succession planning is a fear of death Mm. and retirement really is type a personalities that are high achievers yes they don't want to retire yeah like why would i be confined to do nothing um (laughs) (laughs) they're not interested in retiring and if anything it's the reminder of that they're nearing mortality psychologists call it mortality salience the older you get the more aware of the fact that you're going to die yeah and type a high achieving personalities as they're easing into their 60s their 70s they want them to come into a place of significance they want to achieve they want to leave a meaningful legacy They might have very high ambitions and the business might not be where they want it to be from everybody else's perspective, but they're doing really well, but they have bigger goals to hit and it's not quite time yet to let go and let someone else under the rope. The challenge is that leadership takes practice. Mm -hmm. Being a visionary takes practice understanding the genius of the founder usually their genius is locked up in their head and their heart right it's all very intuitive they're not able to come to a place where um, they can explain they're not necessarily taking data-driven decisions Mm -hmm. they might be surrounded by a lot of helpers as opposed to crew builders and this founder centricity makes it really difficult for anyone whether it's a child or a non-family staff to be able to take over because they really don't know what it is jimmy or, or jill would have done right um talk less to then decide well i want to do it differently right um i liken it to you know a stage show it's like the founder is the main actor on the stage singing dancing you know acting yeah. And everybody else is backstage doing the helping, dressing the actors, doing the lighting. And then the guy that's doing the lights has this deep fear that one day the director might just say, come on stage, you're acting now. That's the <laughs> kind of anxiety that Next Gen Center have because they feel they've never had that opportunity to practice their leadership. Yeah. They've never had that opportunity to rehearse. Mm-hmm. Do you think it could be cultural as well? Could it be 100%. a culture? <laughs> culture worsens that dynamic. Yeah. So um, in Nigeria, um, and I don't like to, you know, just paint one brush because sure, Africa is very, very diverse. Nigeria yes. is very diverse. We have 200 million people, 250 ethnic groups alone mm-hmm. in just one of 54 countries. But we do have a lot of elder dominance. Yes. So 
there's a premium on titles, on hierarchy, on age. So young people are not to question older people. And so what that leads to is a leading, leading from a distance. So mm. the, it's more like ruling as opposed to leading. Right. And so even where you've got next gens that are trying to have a greater voice, trying to learn, trying to ask questions, they may be deemed as rude, mm. as, yeah, as questioning authority. And it can create tensions. A lot of next gens are like myself. I was in the UK for 16 years. They schooled in the US and Canada and the UK. So they're, they're bicultural. Right. They're, they're not just african they're also western they yeah. have this a sense of they're seeking to be individualist but also they do understand we're collectivists at the same time yeah so they're yeah. straddling cultures and mm -hmm. their mindset's very different from their parents mm -hmm. this can create a huge issue with regards to the letting go process um yeah yeah I, I can completely relate. I'm bicultural as well. Um, my parents are from Haiti, so I grew up in a Haitian culture. And also I was born here in the United States. And I can always see those places. You know, we have a very, very distinct place where we can walk that line because we can understand both mm -hmm both ways of thinking mm -hmm. we just have to kind of decide which we're going to use to move forward with and mm -hmm. so I can totally see how that would be a thing when you say you know the youth do not question the adults it's like mm -hmm. oh I remember that <laughs> <show>. <laughs> right so it's very yeah. interesting so yeah I figured it would be and that's why I asked the question because I'm thinking I feel like it would be also cultural oh, that there would be that extra block there because For of sure. the way that, you know, that it, the thinking works. It's yeah. Really Another thing that culture affects is we Africans um, we don't like to talk about death. In fact, right. it's taboo and it's, you, you don't talk about death until it happens and right. celebrate the life of that person that's transitioned. If you're talking about death before it happens, it's that you're inviting you're it calling yourself. It. <laughs> you're calling it, of course. So how in the world does a next generation member have a conversation with their father or their mother about transition, succession planning? Ultimately, we're talking about when you go away. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Right? So it's, that's a challenge as well. How do right. you bring it up? How do you talk about Talking about money is already taboo. It's a universal taboo. A lot of the next generation find it very difficult to bring it up. Like, he's been running this business. She's been running this business. What is it worth? What are the assets? What are the liabilities? How much would we own? You know, basic questions that you need to gain an understanding of to know what it is you're going to right. take over. Mm -hmm. But there's this huge stumbling block where you can't have conversations. That's a huge challenge as well. So from where I'm sitting, it sounds like your job is pretty challenging. So I would like to My know, job is to facilitate conversation. Yeah. So how do you facilitate those conversations? Like, how do you bring the parties to the table and get them to stay at the table to have this conversation? Mm -hmm. Firstly, is to get each party to understand each other. That's foundational. 
Mm-hmm. Empathy is critical. The perspective, the lens through which we see life is our reality. Mm-hmm. So there's, we all have our subjective realities and then there's an objective reality. And I'm not sure we ever, I'm not sure they ever equate to one another. Mm-hmm. It's the coming together of our subjective realities that gives us the objective. Mm-hmm. So getting each party, each family member to understand the way, the lens through which each person sees things. Mm-hmm. Um, what are their fears? What are their ambitions? What are they seeing? What are they hearing? What are they feeling? We literally empathy map it out. I was listening to a podcast with Will Smith and he was saying that he believes that everyone should be an actor. Because when you're an actor, you suspend, you're not grounded in your truth. You're not grounded in your opinions. You're not Mm -hmm. grounded in your reality. You have to suspend that and be able to take on someone else's persona and see the way they look through life. And I encourage my clients to do the same, to be able to then meet each other halfway, to feel what each other feels. Um, That's half of the journey. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of the, what causes conflict is fear shame and anxiety it's even though it's perceived from the other party as coming from a place of supposed privilege or imposing one's power and authority over one or entitlement and what have you it's it's usually fear shame and anxiety Mm -hmm. and you don't deal with heavy emotion through poking our fingers or shouting, you deal right. with it through building psychological safety, leaning in mm-hmm. and having conversation. Mm-hmm. So that's the process through which I do it. Literally, we foster psychological safety. We understand one another's perspectives. And then most importantly, we develop a shared purpose. Simon Sinek's Start With Why compels mm. us to always start with what's the compelling, why are we doing all of this thing for? Like, why yes. are we running around? Because quite frankly, <laughs> Nikkei can go left, set up her own tech company. That's right. Mumbi can go, why? Go work in a nine to five. Why are we, why are we going through all that we're going through, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's, it's not an easy process. It's, it's hard work. It's character building. That's I've been nice, through it. It's character I, building. Yes. It's, it's, it's not easy, right? Yeah. Um, there are other easier ways of making money. Right? Yeah. But they'll be unigenerational and they won't make the same level of impact. So it's until the family gains full clarity on what's our compelling purpose, what's our compelling reason for each of us as a family of five or six or eight or one to stay together in business or what's our compelling reason for each of us to stay together investing? Mm -hmm. Who are we as a people? What are our values? What's our vision? Mm -hmm. Where are we heading to? What's our mission? And then what's our shared history? Because contrary to a lot of people's opinions, history matters. Mm. History matters so much. We are born into someone else's story as individuals, Mm -hmm. as societies as families and it's important to understand that person's stories quite often we accumulate these stories very unconsciously trauma Mm -hmm. reverberates even in ourselves for 14 Mm -hmm. generations so just imagine the different traumatic events that might have have happened in your lineage Mm -hmm. and have affected the way you and your family see things it's really important to unpack that to for instance, things that usually are 
dividing or cause issues or friction in families is what's the role of women mm-hmm. in the family business or um, nepotism, sibling rivalry. Mm-hmm. Often when you look at sibling rivalry, what's usually happening is there's a perceived child that's more loved than the other. Right, right. <laughs> right. And it's usually f- because of some dynamic. It could be that, I don't know, mom had a miscarriage just before that child and had this child. And so for whatever reasons, it's trauma is usually preg- impregnated in these types of dynamics. And right. it's important to unpack those his- that history. So what's our shared history? And what part of our history are we do we need to address to build up upon it? And what's the narrative we are choosing as a family to build upon? Because there's a subjective narrative and there's an objective narrative once right. again, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like I often say that when I'm asked about gender on the African continent, I'm like, it's a complicated subject. We, yeah. have, we have the highest rate of female entrepreneurship in the world. 60% of businesses are owned by women here. We have... From my opinion, we have a lot of matriarchal lineages. Women were actually extremely empowered economically, politically, financially, pre-colonialism. But mm-hmm. the narrative that's been said about the African woman is contrary to that. Mm-hmm. And right now, having known this information as young women, we have an opportunity to choose a narrative that empowers and serves us. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the same thing with families. So mm-hmm. we unpack it. What is the narrative that's been said? What's the truth? Mm-hmm. And what are we choosing to build upon on that right. legacy? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow, you said you said a whole lot of a whole lot of a whole <laughs> lot of there. I mean <laughs> a whole lot of truth a whole there, lot. Oh my goodness. You know, because when I'm listening to you talk about coming to the table with empathy. Isn't that what needs to happen so that we can actually confront this thing called racism? And it's a life skill. It's it's something. It's a life skill. Yeah, it's it's so so important being able to come without all of your without needing to be right. Yep. Without needing to be on top. Yep. When you come to the conversation without needing to be right and without needing to be on top, you'll get so much more done. It's humility. Exactly. And this is not just, you know, when we're talking about race relations or anything, this is talking about, like you're saying, even in a business, when the CEO can come to the table and leave the CEO title in his office and come to the table and say, hey, let's just talk about what's happening with the the company. And people feel free and empowered to go ahead and speak the truth their mm-hmm. truth or as they see it the objective subjective what have you that company will do so much better than any other company because people are coming together as authentically yeah and with empathy without having to be right and creating um cultivating ideas that yeah. are incredibly innovative so when you said that i was like yes <laughs> It's all about that dive. What you just landed on that diversity of thoughts. Yes. Because when you 
suspend humility. You are the custodian of ideas of solutions and you're surrounded by helpers to just execute your ideas. You just give out the instructions and they implement them. But when you suspend that, move from rulership to leadership, mm-hmm. and you're able to have those surrounding you be builders with you, you're not carrying that cross of being the one with having to have all the ideas, having to have mm-hmm. the, all the solutions. Mm-hmm. You're having better quantity of ideas and solutions coming forth from your, your people and quality of ideas you're empowering it's it's it really is it to me it's just like it's so obvious that it's so much easier (laughs) than this style of leadership that has dominated in not only corporate and family businesses but even in politics that's for another day but um (laughs) african politics jeez louise Jeez, yes. Louise, yes. my president is doing some interesting things at the moment. Just, I think I just... <laughs> he banned Twitter, he like, banned Twitter because, because no, you need to listen to this, people. Like, Please. this is, he, he, we've had a lot of insecurity in the nation and in a certain part of the country, the Southeast, there was violence and there was burning of, I think, an election office and election commission office and a police station. He goes on Twitter and issues out a threat to these people from the Southeast, threatening them, referring to the civil war in which it was genocidal. Three million people were exterminated during the civil war. Mm. So he refers to that. Obviously that gets people very riled up. Mm -hmm. People petition Twitter to take down the post. Twitter takes down the post and the president then the next day announces that Twitter is banned. And you can be prosecuted, (laughs) prosecuted for being on Twitter. And then the next day it was, if you have VPN, if you're caught using VPN, because they actually implemented it with speed. So the telephone networks took down, you couldn't get on Twitter with your your normal data. You had to download VPN. And the next day it was threats. If you're using VPN, you can be prosecuted. Guys, this is an example of how not to lead by position. Don't lead. Right. Lead near. You have to get near to those that you're leading. Yes. You can't rule from afar. Right. There was no consultation. There was no understanding. There was no conversation. It was even illegal, quite frankly, right? Right. It was against the constitution. Um, But when you lead from a distance, when you don't engage with those that you're leading, it, it really does, it creates so much issues and friction yeah and it's a them versus us you can never understand those that you're leading and they will never understand you i can promise you my people are still on twitter they're cussing this man out every day (laughs) (laughs) every single day yeah his initiative has failed woefully so he hasn't won the people haven't won The, the economy is losing i think they said about um a hundred thousand dollars every 10 minutes from this twitter ban yeah yeah (laughs) every 10 minutes yeah and it's it's really essentially a temper tantrum and it's yeah and it's affecting people's lives and he can't even see it so incredible yeah so empathy (laughs) empathy Empathy is key 
empathy, right? Understanding, putting yourself in. It's the key to a lot of things. Right. Empathy is a key to a lot of things. Having the conversations. It's a key to understanding and confronting your, your biases as well. Because it, you have to empathize with someone to understand how what you're doing is affecting them. So you have to, in, in, in order to do that, you have to exercise empathy. Yeah. So, yeah. And when you talked about the trauma mm -hmm. that it can be historically passed down, mm -hmm. that same need also for a dominance it gets passed down because because it's how you've been informed right mm -hmm. this is this is how you've been informed so hmm. i'm feeling as though it's a different paradigm it's a different way of being when you're when we're talking about different races of people doing business or even mm. different genders. I think women do business differently than men Completely. if they allow themselves to do that, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so Black people would do different business than white people because mm -hmm. of what's informed them in their lives. Mm -hmm. Not saying it's better or worse, saying it's different, different. and understanding that and appreciating that and allowing that to be the case. Mm -hmm. Because the way that you're speaking in terms of how you would work with countries or, or families there in Africa, you're talking about going back historically. You're mm -hmm. talking about informing yourself about what trauma or what it is that you're carrying through mm -hmm. history to bring you to where you are. Mm -hmm. I have, I've, not, I've never heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of us right? live very unconscious we're unconscious of who we are and what's shaped us. Like yes. I said, we're born into someone else's story. Yes. And you all, have to, yes. All, all of us. All we're of all us. born into, and you have to be conscious and decide what parts of the story am I holding on to and what am I letting go of? But you know, that process of empathy, it requires deep listening, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's not for eye service. It's not, yeah, we're just holding a family meeting and mm. because so-and-so said we have to and yeah, I'm just going to, you know, let them just talk and we're just going to go back to business as usual. It doesn't mm. work. And I think that has strong parallels with the race conversation. Mm -hmm. It's having the ability to truly listen with your head and your heart and to what's mm. said and what's not said. Mm-hmm. It really requires a lot of emotional intelligence mm -hmm. um, to ground all your suppositions and just suspend them, your assumptions, your perspective. Mm -hmm. Levitate above that and truly mm -hmm. just meet the other person where they are. Sometimes mm -hmm. a meeting might just be you listening and you not talking. Mm -hmm. You're absorbing. Absorb it. Think about it, mull over it, and then the next meeting might be you res responding to mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, um, so I think it's a life skill. Like I said, it's not just for family businesses. It's a skill for parenting. It's a skill for mm -hmm. your even in a corporate setting, working with whoever, and even as a business owner, like getting into the habit of developing an empathy map for your customers for yeah. 
your suppliers, for your regulators. Really, it's, I think at the heart of it is, we just want our humanity recognized. Thank you. As Thank individuals, you. <laughs> we just exactly. want to be seen and heard. We're not, we're not machines. Right. That's exactly right? right. We want you to acknowledge that we, there's been a searing of our souls through what we've been through. Each of us, Each we're all longing for that, right? Mm-hmm. And I think for some reason, we've moved away from that humanity in the business world and we think we're just machines and we're just doing business. Yeah. This is all about human connection. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's really, you know, business is usually, has, is really uh, a collective it's a, mm-hmm. it's a collection of minds and people coming together to create something and yep. to continue to build that something. And so when you forget that there's a human element to it, then everything goes to pot. Yep. <laughs> it just doesn't work out so well. For sure. Right. I love what you're doing. Do you, so you say that you're moving. I'm moving, yeah. Are you moving permanently or are you moving... <sighs> Yes. <laughs> yes, I am. I'm moving permanently to the U.S. Wow. Okay. And do you expect that you will continue? This is what you're going to continue to do with U.S. businesses, or are you going to continue to do it with um, businesses in Lagos? Can you? You know. I'm a multi-passionate person, and I'm globally minded. Um, In this age, I can serve whoever as long as I have a Wi-Fi connection and we have a human connection. Right. So yeah, I plan on carrying on this work. It's my life mission. It's my life story, family business. And it's, it's my joy to help folks build generational businesses and generational wealth. Yeah. And your, what is your family business? Are, and you are part of your family business? Well, I'm transitioning because of the move. I'm moving away from being a leader to being just an owner. Okay. Um, our business is in construction, real estate development, and engineering. Okay, nice. Wow, it's so. I I love I love hearing that. I love hearing that you're 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 going to stay connected even though you're moving away, but it's still part of the family. It's part of the family legacy. And yeah. you're part of that. And so that's, you know, that's fantastic. I really want to see more generational wealth go through family lines, Black family lines, because it's the, it's the best way to build a society where people can be equally viable, so to mm-hmm. speak. You know, if you're, if, you know, the median household is, 17,000 and the other is 170,000 that Hmm. that doesn't build a good happy equitable society Mm -hmm. (laughs) right so it's it's so important what have I not asked you about what you do (laughs) that you would like to answer because I can't you know I don't know all the answers but all the questions to ask I think you've asked all the all the questions. I mean, if you if we go into other topics, I think we'll be here for another hour. <laughs> <laughs> but okay. I think empathy is the key. I think that's the key takeaway is empathy as you're building a business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. So I want to you have a podcast. 
let's talk, I do. talk a little bit yes. about your podcast for just a moment. It's called The Connected Generation, right? Yes. And what do you talk about mostly? What, are, what is the gist of your podcast? So legacy businesses, legacy wealth. Yeah. Um, and that can even start from personal leadership. So how do I become the best version of myself to be able to build a legacy business and a legacy wealth? Yes. To wealth planning, to your traditional leadership, to succession planning, family mm-hmm. governance, to talking to other family business owners, going global, anything really to do with building a legacy right. business and legacy wealth. So yes, uh, we have a lot of fun on the podcasts. Awesome. Well, I will put the link to your podcast in the show notes so that um, everyone can go there and listen to what you have to share. My final question, which I ask everyone who comes through Diversity Dish is, what is your favorite dish? Ooh, for me, it's jollof rice, plantain, and chicken. I'm a Niger girl. I can't hide <laughs> Yes, I knew you were going to say jollof I'm rice. Niger, I'm a Niger girl. Yeah, Niger girl, that's right. I love, to be honest, there are many foods I love. Um, yes. Yeah, many fried rice as well, Nigerian style. Yes. Um, I love Thai food as well. Yes. Um, absolutely love Thai food. Um, I love food. <laughs> I love food. <laughs> that works. <laughs> I've had... I have had Ghanaian jollof. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. I knew it. No, we're not doing this. You were going to say that. We're not doing this. <laughs> we're not doing one of, this. One of it's... my best friends from college was from Ghana, and she would make us Ghanaian jollof. So, but I've listened to, uh, you know, listened to different uh, Niger women mm-hmm. such as yourself, and they say, oh, jollof, uh, uh, Niger jollof is the best. So it now is. I have to go find me some Niger jollof and mm-hmm. see, you know. Which city are you based in? I'll find for you. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I'll find. Don't worry. <laughs> My people are everywhere. <laughs> yes. Yes. Which is a, which is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> Yeah. I will I will send you that information so that I can find a place to and then I'll tell you what I think of the Niger Jolo, which I'm sure awesome. I'm gonna love. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Nikkei yeah. Anani, for being here on Diversity Dish. You have really given us a lot of information to mull over and to think about as we move forward. And, you know, I hope more people will consider that the generational wealth is where it's at. And the family business being part of the family business, whether you're just an owner or you become a leader in the business is also important. So thank you so much. Thank you. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. It's been so much fun. Hey, did you enjoy that episode? If so, please be sure to subscribe, download, rate, review, and share. It would also mean the world to me if you became a patron over at Patreon. The information is in the show notes. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.